Did you know that the BBC banned the song Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds after it came out because it contained drug references? Well, it's true. It's hard to imagine that now because this is essentially a song that parents sing to their children as a nursery rhyme. But back in the day, it was considered controversial. I'm Neil Pollock. I'm the editor-in-chief of Book and Film Globe, www.bookandfilmglobe.com. I bring this up today because we're going to be talking to Sharon Vane, our frequent contributor. She writes about censorship issues, and we had an article on the site about the year in censorship and all the problems that young adult books and other books are facing uh, with school boards and city councils and other political entities around the country. We cover the worlds of book and film and streaming TV content on Book and Film Globe. And in addition to talking to Sharon this week, we're also going to talk to our chief film critic, Stephen Garrett, about the new Matrix movie, The Matrix Resurrections. Spoiler alert, he did not like it. And we'll be right back. to all the other bad news in 2021, this has also been a a boom year for literary censorship, Uh, not in terms of the government censoring people, although that is also starting to happen, or in terms of publishers censoring writers, but uh, books are being banned at a record rate across the country, and we ran a roundup of the year in literary censorship on the site uh, this week as part of our year interview series, and Sharon Vane is our Censorship correspondent, our book banning correspondent, Sharon, is here with me now to discuss her piece. Hello. Hello. Uh, as I always say, it's good to be back, but I wish it was for a different reason. It'd be nice to do a segment where we said censorship is over. No books are being banned. Now, I mean, it's, this isn't exactly like a you know blow by blow recount of all the censorship battles going around the country. It's sort of more of a general trend piece. And, you know, I'm just trying to figure out, like, what is going on? Why is there such an intense drive to pull books from schools and libraries? I mean, maybe you could help me uh, make some sense of this. You know, it feeds on itself. And I think what we saw this year was it started in, well, we have to be careful about what we're teaching and sort of all the discussions around what we learn in history class. And then it just sort of pivoted and really picked up steam to we don't want books in libraries that feature things that we, meaning certain parents and certain government officials, think might make people feel bad or might expose students to dangerous things. And unfortunately, there was a lot of misinformation out there and some parents picked it up and eventually, you know, elected officials picked it up. And we just saw it turning into a snowball that affected schools and now public libraries all across the country. There is a sort of a sensorial impulse afoot, uh, both on the right and the left. I mean, there, you know, Dr. Seuss's estate, as you mentioned in the piece, decided to pull some books because it had some, you know, racially offensive imagery. And, you know, uh, there have been uh, some books pulled from the shelves, mostly in Canada, you know, because they promote sort of a white man's imperialist point of view or whatnot. But it's not really the left that is driving the book banning craze right now, I would say. I mean, I think there are, you know, people on the left who are concerned about equity and literature and representation and all that. But right now, I would say the main sensorial impulse is coming from the right. I mean, they're, they're trying to ban 
not just books that um, contain, you know, sexually explicit scenes, but books that just contain any LGBTQ content at all. Absolutely. Um, I would argue that, you know, when we have things like, uh, you know, the Dr. Seuss story, that's a very different sort of discussion around, you know, harmful content of, you know, racist depictions of Asian people and things that we just don't, you know, we, we know better. So we're doing better. But on the other side, these book bannings are being driven by absolutely um, far right conservative entities who aren't reading the books. They're using really specific and coded language when they're talking about these books that depict um, LGBTQ characters. Um, We've seen this in a lot of cases where there's maybe one reference or one scene in a book about same-sex experimentation or experience, and the whole book gets labeled smut or pornography or X-rated. We're seeing this right now up here north of where I live in Austin, um, county commissioners are withholding federal pandemic funds from two school districts saying you got to get rid of uh, these books that have quote unquote smut in them because, you know, otherwise we're not going to give you your federal pandemic relief money. And I would say when we get to that point, it's really a sign that we're out of control. But I thought that before and who knows what's coming down the pike. Um, As um, uh, the National Coalition Against Censorship said in my piece, you know, it's a slippery slope. You know, you think you're talking about one book. It's not just about one book. Um, You know, all of a sudden you turn around and hundreds of books are being pulled from shelves in schools and now in public libraries. Right. You know, I I've talked about this before. You know, I I looked at the sort of the most controversial book of our time is this uh, graphic novel memoir called Gender Queer and you know, I by Maya Kobabe and I, I, you know, I looked at the controversial pages and I'll admit they made me feel a little squidgy. You know, there are you know, graphic depictions of teens having oral sex and, and whatnot, but it doesn't matter to me. I mean, I don't think anything should be censored by, at any time. You know, I don't care. But but, yeah, I was like, yeah, it's, you know, it's kind of it made me feel a little, little weird. But that is just the tip of the iceberg. I mean, you're talking like, you know, classic works of literature, you know, award winning books. You know, Angie Thomas, who wrote uh, The Hate You Give, you know, one of the, you know, the most popular young adult books of its time. You know, she's she's under the gun with this stuff. It's, it's crazy. One of the things that I think is really important for our listeners to think about is, you know, just like you, they might look at a book like Gender Queer and think, oof, like, wow, I feel a little uncomfortable with that. Ooh, I don't know if like I would want my kid reading that. And, you know, there's certainly a discussion to be had about your own decisions and your own children. But when it comes right down to it, one parent doesn't get to make a decision for everybody's family and everybody's kids. I think what's so disturbing, and we've seen parents say this just bluntly and upfront, that a book made them uncomfortable. They didn't want their kid to read it. And therefore, they don't think any child anywhere should have access to a particular book. And that's just censorship, you know, 101, you don't get to decide for everybody what, you know, what, what you, you know, you, you make your own decisions, but you don't get to make a decision for me and for everybody. Well, that's exactly right. I mean, you know, you know, I personally like feeling uncomfortable. So, and I'm also a a parent of essentially an adult at this point, no longer a child. 
I don't have any skin in the game other than being against censorship. And I, I feel like these parents, they don't understand that they're not doing the right thing. They're, they're in the line with uh, the people, the, the parents who are trying to ban rap music in the 80s, the parents who are trying to ban comic books in the 50s, people who are trying to ban James Joyce in the 1920s. You know, I mean, I, I understand that genderqueer and Ulysses are not the same. <laughs> you know, they're they're not they're not on, they're not on the same nexus in terms of literary quality. But th- that's not the point. You know, the point is that, you know, withholding funds from libraries because you don't like the content of what is in their books, it's dangerous. It's very dangerous. It's a very dangerous idea. And that just drives um, ideas and people and kids underground. Yeah, I think there's this kind of narrative of we're trying to protect the kids but protect them from what? Um, essentially, if you look at these lists and, you know, we link them in the story, if you you look at these books that are being targeted, again, there might be a book here or there that individual families might not feel comfortable with their child reading. But overwhelmingly, these books feature black, brown, Asian, LGBTQ protagonists or they're, you know, written by authors um, that um, you know, black, brown, LGBTQ. And so when we say these aren't okay or these are dangerous, we want to protect our kids from these stories. What we're also saying to students who are black, brown, Asian, LGBTQ is that we're protecting the other students from you. Your stories, your identities are not okay. And we don't talk about them in school because they're so dangerous that we either don't talk about them or we have to put them on a special shelf in a special section and you have to get special permission to read those stories. And what an awful message to send to our students that their very identity is dangerous. Well, that's right. And, you know, the irony being that, you know, these they're they're trying to protect these kids, these young adults from from this literature. But, you know, the literature is not driving the culture. The literature is reflecting the culture. And if you look at most young people, uh, even in, you know, conservative areas in small town um, America, you know, the, the their population is much more diverse. They're much more tolerant of, you know, racial diversity and uh, gender diversity. You know, this is just their lives, you know, and I think that these parents are trying to bring uh, antiquated values to this debate. We had a piece about the Spotsylvania courthouse, uh, book banning, book burning that wasn't. When you actually talk to the kids, they want these books in libraries. This is they are not the ones for the most part who are driving this discourse. Why don't we ask them what they think? One of the most powerful things a student can see in a book is either themselves, you see a book reflected that reflects your existence, or you get to, you know, learn and experience an existence that's different from yours. So by taking these stories away, you know, the young adult publishing has made strides in recent years, but despite those strides, it is still overwhelmingly stories about, you know, white, straight, Christian kids. And there are massive ripple effects that can occur from that. When you think about these titles are out there, but what about a classroom teacher or a librarian who thinks, ooh, there's a lot of pushback to these kinds of stories. I'm not going to put these out or I'm not going to choose these for a reading list or I'm not going to invite an author to speak. You know, we saw this in Katie outside Houston where Jerry Craft, who 
won the Newberry for his graphic novel, New Kid, um, he was disinvited from a district-wide school visit because some parents said his book, which was essentially about a black kid going to school, reflected critical race theory. And ultimately there was pushback from students and uh, families and he was re-invited and got to make the presentation. But that quiet censorship is out there and students are craving these stories. We see the pushback from students in York, Pennsylvania, in Kansas City, in Flagler County, Florida, where some of these book banning things have happened. And, you know, there was just a, na a nationwide virtual teach-in with a lot of student advocates to talk about how you harness that voice and that support for diverse books. The one silver lining to this, and, you know, and Katie Smith pointed this out in her year in review of all the controversies on literary Twitter is these books are not being banned. Like they're not being banned by the federal you know, government. You can still buy them on Amazon. And uh, all you do when you try to make something illegal is make uh, people who are the target audience of that book more curious. And uh, no, no one um, from J.K. Rowling on down has actually been canceled by this. And so at the end of the day, anti-censorship forces will win. But it is frustrating to me that we're having to fight these battles and that, you know, that this is even an issue. I would push back just a little bit against that. I agree with you that sort of the high profile people like an Angie Thomas, who even though she's been the target of a lot of censorship efforts, her book is a bestseller. It's still you know, going to be selling out there. But there's a lot of titles. I mean, I think about An Out of Darkness and the author Ashley Hope Perez has become such an advocate for student access. And, you know, certainly that book is getting a fair amount of attention, but it's a mid-list title. It won awards. Um, but are people out there running around talking about Out of Darkness? I think they should. But unfortunately, when you see efforts to censor books that aren't as well known, that aren't on the New York Times bestseller list, it does. It affects their sales. They sort of go off into the ether. So I would encourage people to dig a little bit deeper on those banned book lists and go out there and buy the mid-list titles to do not let the censors win. Yeah, don't let them win. Support your local author under the gun. Um, yeah, and, and Sharon, uh, thank you so much for um, standing up for uh, those mid-list authors and for writers who are being uh, under attack from, you know, petty local bureaucrats everywhere. And, you know, we're going to keep covering this at Book and Film Globe in 2022 and well, probably 2023 <laughs> as well. I hope not, but probably. <laughs> I, I, I mean, I, you know, you're welcome to write about other things too. You don't have to just write about this, but, uh, you know, we, we, we sure appreciate your work and, uh, you know, you're, you're doing God's work, Sharon. <laughs> Thanks for the platform, Neil. You betcha. <laughs> All right. Happy New Year. We'll talk to you soon. Thanks. Nothing ever dies in popular culture, even though sometimes things should die. 
The Matrix Resurrections is in theaters now, and Stephen Garrett has seen it and has not a lot of nice things to say about it. Oh, boy. You referred to it as as a turd when we were talking. Oh, maybe that's harsh. Maybe it's not. I don't know. You know, maybe. uh, Well, yes, it's not. It's it's really it's not very good. I mean, uh, the original movie was so fresh and exciting and strange and unusual. And then the sequel I thought was promising. Two sequels, yeah. Uh, the uh, Reloaded and had some, you know, since it didn't conclude the trilogy, it could be a little more dark and a little more interesting. Um, and then, of course, it kind of ended with this really kind of silly conclusion with, uh, what was it, Revolutions? Revolutions, yeah. And so, you know, maybe it ended with a bit of a whimper. Um Maybe fans were clamoring for a more interesting conclusion or expansion of the world. I know there were video games that were created to a certain extent and and, uh, there was an expanded Matrix world. But, you know, at the end of that third movie, Neo and Trinity die. So the big question in this movie is how do you justify that? How are we going to come back from that? And in fact, they are, as the title says, resurrected. But... (sighs) I think what what bothers me about the movie is it's so proud of its own legacy and it's so delights in saying things like, you know, stories never end. And, you know, maybe they should end. Well, that's the best stories end, actually. You know, I've got to say it. But, um, you know, here's the conceit. Suddenly Neo is back to being uh, Mr. Anderson. And uh, Thomas Anderson is now somebody who is a world renowned video game designer and his masterpiece quite heavily lauded when it came out in 1999 in the world of this matrix um, was a video game called the matrix. And so basically the conceit is that everything that we know from the films that Neo's character went through to Mr. Anderson in this film is actually fodder for his video game. And that's what he's created. And basically the conceit is that they have somehow resurrected Neo and as a prophylactic against him remembering what he did, they actually trivialize it by turning it into a video game so that he can still recall it without him realizing who he is. So he's kind of in a dream within a dream. That's that's, that's extremely meta. Um, It's extremely meta, dude. And then uh, everybody around him is like, oh, the Matrix. I love the Matrix. And they talk about the Matrix and they talk about how great the Matrix is and how it brought up all this, you know, neo-fascism and was gender bending and, you know, really uh, explained the world in a way and explained how nothing is quite real. And it basically is this big self-congratulatory kind of onanistic, very masturbatory approach to celebrating itself. And it, that kind of kind of turned me off immediately. And then, of course, suddenly he sees Trinity, but her name is Tiffany and they have to figure that out. And, and that's Carrie Ann Moss, which is very helpful because those are the original actors. But then Yahya Abdul-Mateen pops up as Morpheus because I guess Lawrence Fishburne turned it down or I don't know what. But suddenly he's calling himself Morpheus. And even though he claims to be Morpheus, there's nothing that he does that's very Morpheus-esque in quite the same way as the original film. So you're kind of like, what? Why? And and Agent Smith is back, but not as Hugo Weaving, because I guess he turned that down. So now he's Jonathan Groff, and they explain it by saying, oh, it's new code. And he gave himself dazzling blue eyes and made himself younger. Okay, fine. It's exhausting in terms of how it tries to explain itself. And then there are these other weird distractions. 
this movie, they explain, takes place 60 years after the original movies. 60 years. Yeah. So Neo wakes up and is explains how, well, now there's not a Zion. It's an IO. And he goes into that city and people talk about how, oh, no, all those events actually happened. They just weren't 20 years ago. They were 60 years ago. And so Jada Pinkett Smith, who was in, you know, the sequels 20 years ago, pops up her character, Niobe. And she's, you know, the, the general now of, of uh, all the, uh, the free fighters. She looks like she's in a high school play where she has to put old age makeup on and move slowly and, and talk in an old person's voice. And you're just like, this is what is this movie? This is ridiculous. And Neil Patrick Harris is the heavy. I'm, I'm telling you, man, there's so many weird things in this movie. Lambert Wilson pops up. He was the Mero, Merovinian. I'm going to get that wrong, but. Yeah, I don't know if you remember him. I don't he know. Was, no. uh, Look, I, I, you know, we talked <laughs> we talked last week about the Marvel uh, Cinematic Universe, and how you know I know that encyclopedically, and you're not as quite as familiar with it. I saw the Matrix when it came out. I get the references. I understand its importance. It, it added a lot of new concepts to our lexicon. I did not see the sequels. It is not a mythology that I care about. Right. Not my movie. Not my movie, as they say. Not my hashtag. Not my Neo. It just sounds. Uh, I mean, it sounds like such a, a disaster. Well, and the thing is, like, also, it's like Jonathan Groff is Mr. Anderson, Thomas Anderson's uh, boss. Right. And he's basically telling Keanu Reeves he needs a sequel to the original trilogy. And he literally calls out Warner Brothers. He says Warner Brothers wants a sequel to The Matrix because it's such a big franchise. And so you see these meetings where people are talking about Matrix 4 and how they need, you know, it can't just be a reboot or a regurgitation. We need we need something new. We need a new bullet time. So, so, know, wait, so it's like, so wait, what? So hang on, hang on. So this movie contains its own pitch meeting? Yes, yes. This is what I'm talking about. It's a snake eating its own tail. You're just like, why am I watching this? You don't need an audience. You seem to be having a lot of fun amusing yourself. <laughs> and, and they're very there's it's poorly directed. There's some scenes that are laughable in terms of the action and in terms of the acting. People are shooting guns like crazy, of course, and not hitting anybody or anything, of course. And this is even before Neo discovers he's Neo and can stop bullets in midair. It's just ridiculous. It's absolutely laughable. It's and it's bizarre. And it's a cash grab and it's maybe a grab for relevancy from Lana Wachowski, who has not really had a lot of hits since that i mean yeah. i guess unless you're a big defender of speed racer thing. some people like that but but the description of the movie this makes me you know i've been campaigning for for the to save movies and just keep going back to the theater i've been campaign, campaigning for that for two years this description makes me think that maybe i was wrong <laughs> this will be very them. disappointing to a lot of people there's one point where jetta pinkett smith she's the general and she's like neo in her totally ridiculous old person voice, I need to lock you up to keep us safe from what you could do to us and destroy the balance that we have down here. So they arrest they arrest him and put him in a jail cell, which, oh, wait, it has a balcony. And so he overlooks the city and then a spaceship comes up and they're like, Neon, hop on. We're going to get out of here. And you're just like, what? What the hell just happened? Good stuff, Steven. This sounds great. I can't That's wait. That's only the first hour, man. I haven't even gotten to the second hour. I, I had a friend who, uh, uh, he said he had tickets to opening night on the 22nd. And I was like, oh, man, I can't. I got to go to my mother-in-law's for Christmas. And it's true. And it sounds like, you know, for once, I get the better end of the bargain with that. <laughs> well, it's funny because also at one point, and, and Lana Wachowski very famously is trans. 
and has gone through her own transformation. And, you know, that's why the film trilogy, the original trilogy, a lot of people talk about it's trans politics. And there are a lot of characters who are very seemingly gender fluid or don't seem to identify one or the other. And nothing seems truly binary. In fact, Tom Anderson is working on a video game called Binary in his uh, overprogrammed uh, fake life. But let's face it, that war is won. <laughs> well, but I think the, the supreme irony is like you're celebrating that these movies are all about that. And yet the ultimate couple is still Neo and Trinity, which is this insanely cis hetero white gender like relationship. So I keep laughing like, what, what this, if you're going to really reboot it, reboot it with different actors altogether, you know, let's really commit to it and let's really explore some ideas. This is such a retread and a cash grab. I think people are going to feel like it's a kick in the gonads. All right. The Matrix Resurrections, a new Hollywood classic reviewed this week by Stephen Garrett. Stephen, we will talk to you in the new year. Ho, yes. Ho, ho, ho. Happy holidays. And uh, yeah, old Lang Syne and all that. Yeah, for sure. Um, No matter what, there will always be movies. (laughs) (laughs) Until until there isn't. But for now, yes. Awesome. All right. All right. Thanks, Stephen. Sorry you didn't like the movie. There will always be another movie. Hopefully you'll like the next one more. And of course, thank you to Sharon Vane for talking to me about the year in censorship. Unfortunately, she will be back to talk about censorship some more. We're always glad to talk to her, but we wish we had another topic. I'm Neil Pollack. I'm the editor-in-chief of Book and Film Globe. This is the first program of 2022. If you're listening to this, you survived 2021. You may or may not be in the matrix right now. I hope you enjoy the show. We will talk to you soon.